Support for the gray area comes from Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The way in which neoliberal makes the most sense as a term and as a critique is the idea that a market logic has expanded to influence and shape too many things in our life and particularly too many things in the state provision of services. Hello, welcome to The Clown Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today is the long-awaited, way too long-awaited, I, I have not done this uh, expeditiously, Ask Me Anything episode. Uh, this is actually the second AMA episode we've recorded here. Uh, I tried to do this before with these questions, this episode, and it just, I don't know, it didn't work. Like this, this podcast is supposed to be a conversation, but instead it was me like listening to a question and then rambling on for a while, and it just felt... Like it felt like not what we're trying to do here. Um, it, it just, I don't know, it, it, it didn't feel within the spirit somehow. So I wanted to make it more of a conversation. Um, and I do apologize to those of you who I asked to record your messages because we're not going to do it that way. But I brought in uh, my colleague at Vox, our interviews expert, Sean Illing, to sort of act as like the the, the audience's interviewer, to, to, to read your questions to me, but also to ask follow-ups to try to make sure I'm not dodging things or not giving an answer I want to give, but doesn't actually seem like the answer to the question itself. Sean is here to to hold me accountable and and to create a little bit more of a conversation rather than just a, a ramble from me. So, Sean, thank you for being here. It's my first time on the show. I'm very excited. This is very very exciting. All right. Well, you you sound excited. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> What's the first question? The first question is from Chris Harris, and it is short and sweet. He asks, "I was wondering how your request for deep work is going, and if you've seen any improvements." It's going, well, I don't know. So deep work. Uh, for those of you who remember uh, the Cal Newport episode, and for those of you who didn't hear it, it's one of my favorites. Deep work is an idea from Cal Newport, and it's basically about the need to sort of shut everything down and take, like, create a schedule where you have big blocks of time, four, five, six, seven hours to work, to not distract yourself, to like not look at Twitter, not be flicking back in between things, to actually be in like a deep kind of creative space. And and deep work is hard. I'm completely won over by this. I think it's really important. I've been trying to build my schedule to do it. And 
I would say I'm struck by how difficult it is. I, I try to do it most days. Um, I often fail. Sometimes I fail just because my schedule fills up. But sometimes I fail because I didn't turn Twitter off or block it correctly on my uh, on my computer. I think I've gotten a lot better at this than I used to be. I've certainly gotten a lot better at knowing I need it. And I've certainly gotten a lot better at like building an environment where I can you know, block Twitter and I use inbox when ready so I'm not seeing my inbox. I do think I've gotten better. But in some ways, the biggest lesson of trying to do more deep work for me has been, one, how much better I feel when I'm doing it. The feeling of distraction and fractured attention is a feeling, it turns out, I really, really dislike inside of me. And two, even knowing that, how hard it is to stick to a schedule that I know will lead to me doing better work and being a a happier person. How do you think doing deep work has actually changed or improved the quality of your work? So I would kind of date this back to taking my book leave um, a couple months back. And John, you and I have talked about this, actually. So I have come to feel that the news cycle has gotten so fast, the Twitter and Facebook and just all of it, notifications on your phone, it's all gotten so loud that it's really hard to just like see what the hell's going on. Like, I, I think... Donald Trump is a perfect creature of all this. Like, he's a creature of a short attention span. He himself, it's like if you gave a short attention span, a cardiovascular system. But to all of us, like, he pulls at that part of us, right? Like, in the morning, he's saying he's invented a tax cut that will will pass in three days and give everybody a 10% tax cut. Like, in the evening, he's saying he's going to take out birthright citizenship through executive action. And it's like, you're just like, you're looking from thing to thing to thing to thing, like from outrage to outrage to outrage to outrage. And there's no time. Like, he keeps everything so confused and confusing and fast-moving. There's no time to get any elevation and try to understand what the hell's going on. When I went on that book leave um, and just, like, had some time, I was off Twitter for that period. I was just far away. I felt like I was able to take the time to understand a lot more about what was going on. And part of that was working on this book, which is about trying to understand what the hell's going on. But part of it was just, like, having the time to read. And so... You know, from there, I've tried to build, one, a lot more just book reading time in. You know, I had really, really gotten away from that. And and I spend a lot more of my time, usually like a couple hours a day now, just reading books. And I think that's been a lot better for me than reading Twitter, reading these other things, just in part because, like, it lets you step out of the news cycle and try to take a little bit of a a broader vantage point. And then, I don't know. I, I think this is a problem right now. Like I've, I've become very spun up about the way in which our attention is being hijacked, not just by Trump, but by Silicon Valley companies. And just like, I think the war for our attention is a very real thing. And I think we're losing it. And I think like there's not a good way to talk about this because attention sounds like something that by definition you control. But I think for most of us, it's actually being controlled by others right now a lot more of the time than anybody wants to admit. And the cost of that, the cost of that to ourselves, to our relationships, all the way up to the cost to the economy, to politics, is more severe than we realize. Well, I think definitely before we move on, a follow-up question I imagine that Chris and many listeners would have, because this is probably a situation that a lot of people find themselves in, and that is, what do you do if you work in an environment that does not recognize the value of deep work? You know, how do you make that pitch to a, a, a recalcitrant boss who is not interested in that and won't give you the space? So I, I can, you know, it's funny. This is one of these things where I can't speak on this for for anybody but me. Um, you know, different jobs have different needs. One of the criticisms I have of, of Cal Newport's work is I think it's very individual creator driven. Um, yeah. It's very much... And I think he would admit this, like it's very much about somebody who is 
doing their own work and is getting like interrupted by colleagues. It's not for someone whose work is fundamentally collaborative. It's not for somebody whose work is fundamentally about being in meetings, you know, then you're just in meetings. But I do think that there is a structure and a framework there for thinking about our own attention, that maybe deep work is not the way to think about it for everyone. Deep work is a, a way to think about it for me when I am doing my writing or preparing for a podcast or writing my book. But it doesn't work for me at all when I'm in the other part of my job, which is helping drive strategy at Vox or launching new products or, or, or you know, or executive producing on the Netflix show, right? There are a lot of things where I can't be shut off from communications and I can't be sitting in a cabin just trying to think thoughts about politics. But the reason the Deep Work book influenced me a lot is I would actually say before I read that book, people sometimes ask, like, what have you read that actually changed your mind about something? And that's one of those books. Before I read that book, I was somebody who in these discussions about being, you know, the value of being bored or the problems of our phones, I really came down on the side of being in an information flow at all times is great. That there's nothing good about being bored. There's a reason people don't enjoy it. That there's nothing good about just like sitting there and not having anything to read. Like I'm, I'm somebody who will like read like anything if I'm bored, like backs of cereal boxes, shampoo bottles, whatever. And Newport convinced me that like that may be true to an extent, but that feeling in us, that evolutionarily built-in desire for distraction has now gone so far. It has now been used so adroitly by technology companies, by politicians, by corporations, by advertisers, by programmers, that it's like way in hyperdrive. We're neuroplastic. What we're doing at all times is training our brains to be whatever our brain thinks it needs to be. And the more we train our brain to need distraction constantly and to get it by flicking on Instagram, like the more we just lose our ability to have an attention span at all. And I think we see it really clearly in kids who, you know, I think the, the emergent evidence that smartphones and all this stuff are bad for them is pretty strong. I mean, I'll say that, you know, one of the influences all this has had in me is I have taken everything I enjoy off of my phone. Like anything that I can do effectively for less than a minute is no longer there. Like I have a lot of complicated thoughts on Twitter, though I still use it. But that's gone. I really enjoyed Instagram. Like, I liked Instagram. It was basically the only social platform I, I found fun. It's gone because it was something that I just kept coming back to to, like, get that little hit of dopamine for a second. And it was something that was, even though I liked it, it was creating an addiction to my phone that I didn't like. It was a continuous, like, habit that, that kept me picking up my phone. Reddit, I love tooling around Reddit. Gone from my phone. I actually don't miss it at all, even though I enjoy using it. And I found that slowly my addiction to my phone is breaking too. Now it's like I've downloaded you know, more apps of news organizations and I have my Kindle. And it's like, if I don't have time to actually read an article or energy to read an article, maybe if it's, we're only really talking about 90 seconds, I can just sit there and let my brain rest for 90 seconds or look around me or take 10 deep breaths. And I think that's actually really helping. And so in that way, you know, there's a deep work side of this, right? Which, which has to do with sort of creative output. But the part that I think is more important, and the part in some ways that I've been answering this question a bit, is about retraining our own attention. And I don't think that's dependent on our bosses. I don't think our bosses are making us, for the most part, some, some people work in social media, they're not making us check Twitter and Reddit. I think people are doing a lot of things that feel like work now that really aren't. They're just keeping up with information flows. I think Slack creates a lot of fake work where you're keeping up with rooms that are not actually about your work, but they're just like, it seems like it's work, right? It's a piece of enterprise software. And, you know, I think there are a lot of things we can blame on our bosses, but I think 
the tendency to be training ourselves into complete and utter and constant distraction for most people, like that's a little bit about our choices and the way our choices are being manipulated and architected by um, like giant corporations in our built environment. Well, I think we covered that pretty well. So let's keep this humming and move along to question number two. And that is from Annalise Gallagher. She says, you talk a lot about reaching across the aisle about listening to perspectives that are different from our own. But in Trump's administration, there are a lot of political views that are blatantly rooted in misogyny or racism, like separating families at the border or the Muslim ban or you name it. Whose responsibility is it to engage in a discussion and educate a hateful group? So I I very much hear where this one's coming from. And and I'm very sensitive to the idea that the work of confronting bigotry or the work of confronting um, hatefulness should not always fall or should not fall in general on the populations bearing the cost of it most heavily. So, you know, like I I hope that's something that I'm trying to do in my work. But I I do think that there's a a question here about politics, which I, I almost want to take separately because it's not Nobody's forcing anybody to participate in politics. Now, politics often forces itself upon you, right? Like whether or not you participate in politics, like politics may participate on you. It might take away your Medicaid or it might give you Medicaid or, or you know, there's a million ways in which policy decisions and, and political decisions affect our lives. But if you are going to participate in politics, I don't think that there is a way to do it without it being the emotional labor often of persuasion. I mean, fundamentally, there are like two things people are doing in, in politics, separate a little bit here from policy. It's persuasion or it's mobilization, right? I mean, th- those are the choices. You can be trying to convince people to agree with you when they don't already, or you can be trying to get people who agree with you to act on that, uh, on, on that zone of shared agreement. And I do see this discourse about emotional labor bleeding into a discourse about political change in a way I think is really unhelpful. If you want things to change in politics, like it's often not fair, right? It's often not fair who has to do it, right? It's got to be the people who already know the change they want. It's often um, really unpleasant and sad. Like, you know, I, I get like paid to do political journalism, so I don't want to. I don't want to frame myself as a as an altruistic volunteer here. But I've been doing this, you know, for a long time, and I got into it because I care about these issues. And it's often really hard. Like I covering the things I cover. To me, like it comes with a real emotional cost and like it particularly has in the past couple of years. And I've had to retool a lot of my life to make that emotional cost more bearable. Like I basically don't talk with people about politics outside of work. I get asked about it a lot because I'm known to be somebody who does this stuff professionally. And I will often move the conversation away or just say like, hey, sorry, like it's an off hour for me. And like that's been true. You know, I think it's frustrating sometimes for my family to talk to me. But, like, if you care about politics, if you care about these outcomes, um, and I'm not saying this is fair, like, I think it is okay to pull back. Like, I don't think everybody, I don't think it is mandated that everybody participate all the time or even that everybody or anybody participates any of the time. I'm not somebody who who stands on, on a high horse saying that, you know, if you're not out there knocking on doors, you're not a good person. But to the extent that your goal is political change, I don't know that there's a way to get it without being in there doing emotional labor that kind of sucks, right? And kind of means taking things that you believe are self-evidently true or self-evidently right or moral and talking to people who do not believe that or who believe that but just don't care enough to act on it and and trying to get them out there. Like, 
I don't know, Sean, you're like a, a PhD political theorist. I'm curious how you read this issue. Well, you know, it's really complicated, right? So in conversations like this, the theory practice gap is a pretty crucial distinction, right? So there's the world we want and there's the world we have. And in the world we have, compromise is often necessary to get things done. At the same time, lines have to be drawn and there are certain things that can't be negotiated or sacrificed. And knowing where to draw that line can be really difficult, you know. And maybe that's a, maybe that's a follow-up question here, right? How do you know where to draw that line between pragmatic, necessary compromise and just outright capitulation? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a good point. There's sort of two sides to this question, right? There's the, it's the issue of whose job is it to try to change minds, right? Who, who should have to take on that burden? And, and that's sort of what my, my initial answer is about. And that's a question of like, how do you compromise with a party that has in some ways gone off the rails? I guess I don't find that to be as hard of a question somehow. You compromise if you think the compromise will make things better rather than worse, right? You know, um, the world is what it is. <clears throat> Excuse me. The world is what it is. The Republican Party holds a lot of power. The Republican Party has gone in a very bad direction in the past couple of years and has been going in that for, for quite a bit longer. But, you know, if Donald Trump, as much as I dislike a lot, both his policies and his personal behavior and his temperament, um, if he comes out with a good criminal justice reform plan tomorrow, great. Like, let, let's have a conversation about that. Um, I don't find the question of compromise to be a hard question. I think the problem is the Republican Party does not want to compromise. I really – it's funny. Like I, I think there's like a lot of agonizing about this among Democrats. But I think that Democrats have been and have been for years, including like when Obama was in power, but but also now, have been much more willing to, to be open to, to working with Republicans on things than Republicans have been to working with Democrats. I mean, just look at the difference between the Obamacare legislative effort – and the Obamacare appeal legislative effort, which was trying to replace it with something and never made any effort to create some kind of bipartisan, not just replacement, even a bipartisan process by which to do that. You know, similarly, I think if you look at like the way taxes were done under Obama, there was a lot of effort under the various committees to try to make these, these things bipartisan. And it was not done under Trump and under under the current regime of Republicans. So. I don't think the question of whether to compromise is a is a hard question. I think the fundamental issue in politics right now is that there aren't compromises on the table. Well, it's bad faith, right? I mean, that's a big problem here. And maybe that's part of what, you know, Annalise is getting at, right? How do you engage earnestly a process that you think is broken or with a party that is fundamentally acting in bad faith, while at the same time, real people in the real world are really suffering? And I think that's a real dilemma for a lot of people, and there are no easy answers. No, I mean, I mean, there, there, there definitely are not. Like, it, it all depends on sort of what your role is, right? If, if you're, you know, are you a citizen? Are you a legislator? Are you talking to legislators? Are you talking to just people in your community? Right. Are, you know, I mean, there are a lot of different ways to be involved, and I, I think this will come up in a, in a future question. But, but one thing that I, I'll, I'll maybe point, plant a flag in here is that our attention is heavily here on national politics where there it's very depressing and there are often not compromises to be had. Local politics often isn't like that. State politics often isn't like that. And so, you know, if you're feeling really burnt out on national politics, but you want to make things better, you probably have a much better chance of doing so and feeling good about yourself and your community while doing it by participating locally. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And we'll definitely circle back to that. Uh, unless you want to say anything else on this, I want to jump to this next question, Let's which I'm really, really in interested to hear. 
your answer. And this one is from Henry Severance. And he's asking, for someone who's very involved in politics, how do you manage a sense of spirituality while immersing yourself in a really nasty, bitter, divisive political world? So I was thinking about how to answer this question. And we we chose some of these because they would make me sweat a little bit. And this is one of them. I don't know hard. that I would call myself spiritual is one thing here. I have a lot of practices that are about trying to see myself and things more clearly. I, I, have a, I have a meditation practice that's very meaningful to me. I read a lot of philosophy and, and I try to think a lot about what it means to be moral. But I'm not spiritual in the sense of believing in things that I can't see, smell, touch, hear, or understand otherwise through scientific methods. It's not that I'm sure nothing else exists. I'm, I'm just agnostic and, and I don't spend time in that space. You know, if I'm defining it, I think, in the way that I, I try to approach it in my life, I try to create space away from politics that is quieter and where I'm exposed to ways of thinking about the world that are not bounded by the politically possible. You know, I, I try to read a lot that is just outside political boundaries. I try to read more fiction. I try to read more, um, as I mentioned before, philosophy. You know, I've gotten very engaged in questions of effective altruism and, and animal rights. And, you know, that to me is a place where I feel like I'm able to keep my vision, both in terms of what I should be doing and in terms of what it means to be a good person, from being too defined by the political warfare that is around me every day. And then, you know, I try to be a good husband. I try to be a good friend. I try to be a good family member. I try to be a good member of my community. Like, those are practices that I care about a lot. But I, I don't know if they're spiritual practices, but they're they're at least balancing practices. And as I said to a question earlier, as politics has gotten more bitter and more angry and I've become more and more disillusioned by it, um, which, isn't, uh, which isn't to say I, I deal with it any less um, or even deal with it all that differently, I've tried to set better boundaries in my own life for where it can be and how much of my life it can occupy, mainly because um, I think letting it become too consuming is poisonous right now. I think it's a very toxic space. You know, I will say like some of my some of my reactions to social media come from feeling that there is something being elicited from us politically in those spaces that are making most of the people I see and myself included worse people, not better people. And I do think of politics as fundamentally a moral pursuit. And so feeling like I am pursuing it and becoming a worse person as a result is a feeling that really feels to me like I'm missing something. And it's why in many cases I've begun to recede from some of these platforms or, or engage with them in a much more limited way just because I don't feel like I'm able to protect the boundaries of the kind of person I want to be on them. Well, I think that really touches on the rub of this question, which is really spirituality is a big slippery word. And let's maybe simplify it a little bit and, and ask, how can you be presumably the person you want to be, which is kind, prudent, grounded, thoughtful, all the rest of it, while working in a space that is just littered with rage and, and, and anger and frustration and disbelief? Uh, because this is something I know I've struggled with, right? The, the, some of this stuff, Twitter in particular, brings out the absolute worst in me. I am the worst version of myself on all of these platforms, and I've tried to dial down some of my hot takery, but all those buttons are getting pushed perpetually. And it's very hard to maintain any sense of 
balance or, or, or moderation when you're sort of swimming in that every day? Is this something you sort of consciously struggle with or do you have any advice for people who are struggling in similar ways? I think the question here is like what does this really refer to? I think we've begun to believe that whatever we're doing in politics is politics. Right. So if you're on Twitter politics, like that's politics. And like how can you be involved in politics but not be on Twitter politics? Or, you know, I talk to people who watch a lot of cable news. And cable news is a like a factory for outrage, right? The, I often try to think about like what emotion is being elicited from me right now, right? What, what emotion do the people who are talking to me or programming to me want me to feel? And often on cable news, I feel it's anger, right? It's outrage. It's how dare they? I mean, politics has a lot going on in it. You know, they could be covering, you know, worthwhile local initiatives all over the country, um, as, as Sarah Cliff is doing on this season of The Impact, which, quick plug, if you are not listening to it, it will make you feel better about everything. But, but it's not less politics, right? It's actually, I think, a more true version in some ways of politics than a lot of what we're given. You know, one of the things I worry a lot about is that a lot more politics is happening now in places and a lot more politics is being driven in places that are trying to make us angry for business reasons. Twitter gets the most engagement. Facebook gets the most engagement when people are very, at least in its political dimensions, when people are like outraged, when they're like delivering sick burns on each other, when they're being very, very, very tribal. Cable news gets the most um, watchers when people are really upset, when they're scared, when you're out of power and you're feeling angry and you're feeling upset and you're feeling powerless, you begin tuning in. And that is a true part of politics, but then it makes all of politics more like it. And it's not the only true part of politics. And I worry that there's like a feedback loop here. One of the decisions like I've made was to concentrate more and more on the podcast, on this podcast, than on some of the other parts of my work that I did. Like I, like I used to do a lot more cable news, for instance. I used to like host cable news shows. And it's not to say anything. I think there's like some people there who do really good work. And certainly when I was there, I tried to do really good work. But I can just control this space better. And I can make it more of what I want it to be. And like, obviously, not everybody has like the, the range of choices I have. Like very few people do. I'm very lucky in that. But I do think people have more choices than sometimes they realize. And sometimes I, I don't think they're making choices that make a ton of sense. I feel like I keep circling around this question that's coming later, I know, about local politics versus national politics. But again, here, like one of the things I want to say is that if being involved in politics on Twitter or tuning into it on cable news is driving you crazy... Like, that's not all politics is. And national politics isn't all politics is. You're probably least useful in national politics. All of us are probably least useful when we're engaging in national politics. Like, do you know who your state legislator is? Um, like, I, and I don't say that like, like everybody else is like an, an idiot. Like, I often have it in my own life. But you can probably have a real effect on what they think. Or if they're great, you can really help them out. There are, you know, possibly ballot initiatives. I mean, there, there are local groups. Like, like, there's so much happening in politics. And a lot of it is connecting and grounding and will make you feel more part of your community. Like, personally, I don't read Twitter. I, I tweet out um, and I bookmarked a couple individual people's Twitter pages. You know, like there are some political scientists who tweet out papers like Matt Grossman. But I don't read the feed anymore. I don't read Facebook at all, like at all. I, as I mentioned, I've taken Instagram and Reddit off of my phone. I don't read them. I've gone back to reading publication homepages. Like if you look at my phone, I have Vox and I have the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Atlantic and the New Yorker. Like I go to their homepages and I read them that way. Um, I use Nuzzle to see what people, the, the articles people are talking about on Twitter, but, but not to read Twitter. 
I don't really watch television news at all. I listen to a lot of podcasts, including a lot that are not that political, and I read a lot of books. And I don't feel that I'm missing crucial information. I feel that I'm getting more perspective. And like, I worry even saying this, it's going to sound like like I'm I'm trying to sound like I've like figured something out or I'm coming down the mountain. And, and I'm not like, I just felt it was all making me crazy and also it was making me worse at my job. It was making me focus on the same things as every other, as everyone else. And like, that's actually not my job. Like my job is to try to like understand things differently and, and give people a different angle on them. And I find that exposing myself to slower forms of information and cutting myself off from some of the controversies of the moment is just a lot healthier. And so I don't know, like I... I want people to have a broader definition of how to engage in politics than engaging in the places where people have set up an architecture for you to be angry and upset all the time. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't be angry and upset. I am angry and upset. Like, I think the Donald Trump presidency is a, a bit of a daily horror show. But I also think it's come about in part because of these platforms that made people angry and upset all the time. And so it's like we're in this cycle where we're angry and upset. So we're getting more angry and upset outcomes. So, you know, and it goes around and it's not that you never get good outcomes out of it. Right. There's like good activism and, you know, a, a powerful resistance to Trump. But but in general, I think being upset all the time for everybody is not making politics better. And um, I don't think it's the only way to be in it. You know, I think you should have a, a healthy level of outrage. But also if you're having so much that your circuits are breaking, like maybe find other ways to to learn about this stuff and participate in it and be able to have a little bit more just space for your own feelings about it to form um, as opposed to to having it all be manipulated by people trying to manipulate you. Can I ask a strange, weird follow-up question to this that yeah. is, I think, actually related? And you can just punt and we can move on sure. if you don't want to answer it. But I'm curious. If you woke up one day and realized that the work you do is creating more tension in your life and that you'd be happier and more fulfilled if you just walked away and did something else. Would you have the courage to do it given everything you've built and how invested you are in it? I don't know. Um, let me think about this. I think one question there is I don't really think being happy is my main purpose in life. I do think there are probably jobs that I'd be happier in, you know, just like more peaceful in than, than the yeah. one I'm in. Um, but I care a lot more about being of a kind of service, you know, I, I just, I, I guess it's a form of happiness, but I don't know, like there's a difference between like long term, do you feel like you're doing the right thing? And like right now is what you're doing feeling good. And so, yeah, like engaging in politics at this moment, I don't think makes me happier, but I, I think it's important. Um, and, and that's a, that's the way in which I live my life. I do take your broader point, though, of, you know, would you be able to walk away from things that were, you know, either breaking you as a person or that you thought were making things worse? Um, you know, what I can say is that I felt that I was not going in the long run to be able to be editor in chief and do a good job at it and do a good job in my own work and also be the kind of person I wanted to be in my, my own life. And so I stepped down as editor-in-chief, and I'm personally proud of that. I'm proud of the work I did as editor-in-chief, and I'm proud that at a point when, you know, managing the organization and, and doing the other things that were important to me became too much, you know, I, I passed off management of the organization. But, you know, I, I've obviously on this podcast been talking about my fears that media has become a broken system and that we're making things worse overall. And while I don't think my work is, or I hope it isn't, you know, am I sure I have a super clear-eyed view on any of it? And, and am I sure that I could walk away from a system I'm part of if I, you know, began to feel more and more comfortable with it? I hope so. Um, but but I don't know. Um, I, I think I think 
I think we're very good at convincing ourselves of what it is easiest for us to believe. And, you know, a lot of the work I do is to try to <laughs> make that harder for myself. But, but I can't say that I'm always sure I'm being successful. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. Having tough conversations with your kids is just part of being a parent. And sure, those convos might seem a bit intimidating, but they can also set your child up to go out there on their own. And one of those big talks should probably involve money. How to be responsible with it, how to earn it, and that it's not infinite. If you're looking for a way to put those lessons into action, you might want to check out Greenlight. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. You can send your kids instant money transfers, get real-time notifications of spending, manage chores, and automate allowance. My kid is only four, but a colleague of mine here in the Vox Media family uses the Greenlight card with his two boys, and he loves it. Plus, the Greenlight app also comes with games that teach kids money skills in a fun, memorable way. You can sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging, honeycomb, arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushion footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. All right. Our next question is from Kimball Mortensen, and he wants to know if you think the left has gone too far in its efforts to promote a more just society in terms of their tactics or behaviors or anything else. Where do you think or do you think the left has gone too far on any front? I, I mean, I, I certainly don't know how to answer this one. I'm sure one can come up with examples of the left going too far, right? Like the left is a big thing. It includes many people. It includes many groups. You know, I I don't know if what's in the, the question of his head here is like college campuses or different kinds of activism or things a Democrat has said on 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 Twitter or on cable news or, or just on the floor of Congress. I think a lot of politics goes too far. I think a lot of politics is ungenerous. I think a lot of politics is like problematic. I think people are often not engaging as a version of their best self. So in that way, I, I just I think the left, right, like all like people are constantly going too far. Like like again, to to ping back to other parts of this conversation, like fire up Twitter any day of the week and you'll see people on all sides going too far. I do think there's this question of that may be the one that's being asked here or embedded here, of whether or not, you know, kind of quote unquote social justice movements are going too far in campus or or somewhere else, whether or not that they've chosen tactics that are um out of bounds. 
I am not a fan of like no platforming or deplatforming, I guess. Um, and I'm definitely not a fan of that turning violent. So in those cases, you know, like where like people have heard my debate with Sam Harris, um, I'm not a fan of Charles Murray's work on, on race and IQ. But the, you know, as I've said before, the protest in Middlebury that turned violent was both, I think, like morally wrong and also, by the way, tactically a disaster. It like just made him like a, a cause celeb and got him on bigger podcasts. And, you know, like it, it was bad on all levels, but but morally wrong. Like I think that, you know, American politics is on some level like a like a it's an infinite game, not a not a finite game. And you want to be able to keep playing like to use violence. It's not that that could never be um, justified, but it has to be truly, truly, truly extraordinary. And somebody you don't like giving a speech on campus that they're invited to give, I don't think it justifies that. So I think you can go too far. But in general, I think that the movements that are trying to create boundaries that would allow for a more inclusive society to change boundaries that have actually excluded people for a long time, but they've not had the power to talk about it. I don't I don't think the mainstream of that movement has gone too far. And I think that the intense, intense, intense focus on the points of too farness on like this one campus somewhere where something went, you know, like a little like went got out of control. I think like that's a too farness of its own sort. Like I think that is a tactic for discrediting a broader um, set of set of efforts that are totally legitimate and that people just, you know, for their own reasons, do not want to see succeed. So like in general, I do not really see evidence that like social justice warriors have become some kind of dangerous force in society. And I think they go too far sometimes. I think their backlash goes too far sometimes. But I think mostly it's within the boundaries of politics, which is always an effort to renegotiate the limits on like how we think about what is acceptable and unacceptable in society. And the idea that like this is some terrible thing we've only just started doing, I think it is so blind to the history of activism in this country and every other that it honestly just baffles me sometimes. Like you can think things are wrong, you can disagree, but the idea that, you know, just like having these conversations or trying to say that like one way of talking about a person is injurious to that person and should be and should stop and we should use different language, like that's not something we invented in the last 10 years, like that's always been a debate and a fight in this country and it should continue to be. And I think people could, I think people could listen a little bit more as opposed to being like so intent on the examples that show them that their enemies are are, are somehow out of control. Yeah. I mean, I guess what I find so irksome about a lot of these sorts of questions is sort of what you hit on, which is the left. What does that even mean? It becomes this sort of amorphous kind of catch-all term for, you know, a few student groups at Yale or something like that. But I think maybe another way to get at this question or to tease out what the questioner is really getting at is to ask you, what is the most persuasive critique or the most persuasive critic that you've read or encountered right now of the modern left? Who is it that you read that really gives you pause and and makes you think about uh, maybe where the left has gone wrong or overreached or whatever? All right. Th- this is a good question that I've not spent time thinking through before I came here. I think that the critiques of the left that I find most persuasive right now actually are coming from sort of like religious oriented political theorists. Mm. So I would use I would put Patrick Deneen in this category. Um, Ross Douthat, I think, channels a lot of this in his column. I think that there's a critique of the idea that society should be really about individual choice, that religions, for all their problems, and they have many, many, many problems, um, they created structures and communities and a rootedness 
that provided important kinds of um, connectiveness, but also discipline in our lives, right? I, I do think that something that you see in politics a bit is like just like a total sort of untethering from any kind of morality, uh, certainly with Donald Trump, say, beyond like what's needed to win. I think that if you like listen to sort of a deep critique of the left right now, like not some of the shallow ones, but the deep ones, that it's working off of older religious traditions and it's saying that a vision of society in which we're really just like we are focused on individual human flourishing and we define that by like whatever individual people want to do right now with very little thought for the context in which they operate or the people around them or tradition or anything else, that in the long run, it's going to create a society of lonely, anxious, disconnected people. I think like the very weak version of this critique, the old one, is that they will have no morality. I don't think that's true at all. But I, I think that there is something to the idea that um, – it becomes very hard for people, particularly disattached people or people who maybe are not that socially adept themselves or don't have some of the skills they need to survive to find their way. You know, something that I, I think about a lot is the way that there's a real attachment right now to people who are offering semi-religious messages disattached from religion. Um, when I look at, say, a Jordan Peterson and 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 Tara uh, Burton wrote a good piece about this for Vox a while back, um, but but I've been thinking this too that when I look at somebody like Jordan Peterson, I see somebody who is basically operating like a religious figure in an irreligious way. I mean, to the point that he talks a lot about mythos and archetypes, and I mean, he's he's almost got a quasi-religious pattern putting aside the sort of self-help dimension of him. But but I think that if you look at the other side, it's like he's a kind of stern like preacher figure for young men who are not religious, but who want structure in their lives and feel like they don't have it. Like this whole idea of like, make your bed, right? Like be clean, like be, you know, be somebody who um, has order in your life. I mean, this idea that you have all these like young men, like, like desperately searching for somebody who like, like scolds them about order. I think it speaks to a hunger for something that is, that is gone, that is, um, or if not gone, that, that they're having trouble finding. And so I do think that there is something in the critique that, you know, the left has wanted to do away with a lot of institutions and it has wanted to put the basis for like the good life really on the individual. And it's like whatever choices you make, as long as they're the choices you wanted to make and you were allowed to make them like great, like that's the good life. And the idea that there's something impoverished in that that has been and has become destabilizing, you know, I think a lot about ideas that are like maybe 70% wrong, but 30% right, and how important things like that are. And like, th that's an idea I kind of put in that category. I don't think it's right. It's like, it's not made me kind of completely change my idea of politics. But I think it has a real insight to it that should be taken seriously. Well, let me pull on another thread here, because I think it's something we should at least touch on, because a lot of people will expect us to with a question like this. And it's something you hear from Jordan Peterson, you hear from other prominent people, maybe like Bill Maher, and, and in a more nuanced way, even from someone like Angela Nagel, who wrote the book Kill All Normies. And part of her critique of the left in there is that she thinks that liberals are losing their capacity to defend their own ideas because they're so much more focused on policing speech or enforcing speech norms and what have you, and that because of that, they're not really interested in or able to articulate their own philosophy or defend their own philosophy and that that in the long run 
is a very bad thing for the left. Do you buy that at all? I don't hugely buy it, to be to be totally honest. I think, I mean, look, it always depends on what you're talking about. I am very, very unfriendly to arguments of the frame or of the structure. Some college students somewhere acted in a way I didn't like and thus the left. Right. That is a structure of argument that I think has never made sense at any point. Um, like, I went to college at a time before social media made it easy to amplify any, like, crazy thing that happened in any college. And you know what? Like, there are a lot of bad arguments in my college, right? There are a lot of bad arguments at every college. There are a lot of people who are engaging in politics in an expressive way. Um, and by the way, I made a bunch of bad arguments in college. <laughs> like, I would not I would not want to stand behind a lot of the bullshit I was saying in college. And so I look at a lot of the things that people are pointing at here and I see people who are trying to learn activism. I see people who are like, you know, like practicing, like how do you try to have an impact on the world? And I do not see evidence that like the left or for that matter, the right, like anybody, honestly, has become in some kind of like numerical sense, like they have lost the people who can defend ideas. I do not find the modern right to be an unbelievable machine of persuasion. Um, I do not think Donald Trump even operates in a persuasive manner. He's not somebody who thinks in argument or tries to convince people of things they they don't already believe. But even among this world of of folks who I don't know, like I've had a lot of like run-ins with Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson. I mean, Sam Harris. Um, his thing is that there are these identity politics people he doesn't have to talk to. Like one of the things that came out in our conversation is he will not talk to Tanahasi Coates. I mean, I don't know if the Tanahasi would talk to him, but he wouldn't talk to Tanahasi Coates because Tanahasi Coates plays identity politics and is thus not worth talking to. And I don't know. Like I think if you want to engage in a conversation about race in America and you think you've got nothing to learn from Tanahasi, like that's ridiculous. Like that's like an honestly ridiculous standpoint coming from somebody who I'm sure would say, like, oh, you've got this modern left that, you know, just like won't talk to the people thus that they have to defend their and learn how to defend their ideas. And, you know, and I think like as a result, like Sam's ideas on race are pretty weak. But as a general point, I think this is ha- I think this happens in all political movements all the time. They like to talk to each other. And, you know, they often want to draw boundaries about who it, who should be within the discourse and who shouldn't be, right? Like, I like Arthur Brooks' version of this, where it's like, there's a very big difference between treating people with anger and treating them with contempt. I think, a, like, political movements are always trying to decide, like, who should just be in the contempt bucket so you don't have to talk to them and learn how to defend yourself against them. But the thing that I just don't really see, um, or at least, like, have not been persuaded of yet, is that this is happening on a societal level in some way it hasn't been in the past, that people have way less exposure to arguments that they don't agree with versus I just like, how do you, how do you tell that apart from the idea that college activists have decided that an effective way to work in the world is to try to police boundaries of speech, which again is something we've done in the past. I mean, I'm not going to use the words here, but a lot of words have fallen out of our discourse because we now find them offensive. So that isn't a new strategy. And it's like maybe you would prefer that more of them are choosing a kind of open debate strategy than an activist strategy. But we've always had activists and we've always had debaters. We've always had people who are trying to change laws and we've always had people who are trying to change minds. And a lot of this discourse seems to me to rely on confusing one for the other and saying that, like, because some people are doing this, nobody is doing that. I, I just, I, I find it, I don't know, I, it's possible, right? Obviously, like, my approach to life is, like, I'm sort of, like, on the 
on the talk to people side of these things. And I like talking to people and I like hearing what they think and I like exposing myself and my audience, hopefully, to their ideas. But I don't think that's ever been everybody's approach to politics and nor do I think it needs to be. Does that make sense? I don't know. No, it, make, it makes sense to me. I mean, it, it's, again, it, no one ever knows what the hell they're talking about when they use the term the left. And so there's already confusion at the start. And I think it made sense. And I don't think I disagree with any of it, I just, frankly. We're, we're colleges, I don't know, like, you know, there's this um, speech from the from Sean Decatur, the head of Kenyon University, where he talks about, he's the first um, African-American head of that university. And he, he talks about how, it's not new that colleges and, and individuals in colleges are constantly trying to police boundaries. I mean, you just had very different people doing it and doing it in very different ways before. I just remember college. Maybe I remember it differently than people because I went to UC Santa Cruz and, and UCLA and they're in California and who knows. But I remember college and I remember the colleges I visited and I, I go speak on colleges all the time. I'm super impressed by the kids I meet there all the time. I'm just like blown away by how thoughtful they are and how smart they are and how engaged they are. And also, like, some people in colleges are always kind of acting the fool. And I don't know, the extrapolations being made out of that seem just so weird to me. And this idea of, like, some golden age when we were all engaging with each other in these, like, platonic, I just, I don't, I don't, I'm going to be doing a, a discussion with John Haidt soon. And I think his book is sort of more persuasive on this than others. And I don't, I don't really want to um, talk about that before I talk to him about it. But there's a level of this that, like, I don't understand and often seems to me to be people talking past each other, like applying a standard to the folks they don't agree with that they're not applying to themselves. And I just I don't see the people who are making these arguments honestly being so open minded about the people they're making these arguments towards. It's, it's like an argument that like those people over there are being closed minded and they're not listening to other ideas and like they're not being generous in how they read the opposition. And that's being done in ways that are not listening or being generous or being that open or, you know, looking at the best of a group rather than the worst. So I don't know, like to some degree, it often kind of feels a little bit like projection to me. Well, you know, look, I say this as someone who very recently taught uh, on a college campus and, and I personally didn't experience really any of these pressures uh, that a lot of people are sort of making noises about. I know people who do complain and do feel that the climate has changed and that they have to be a little more sort of self-conscious about what they say or, or what they don't say or or how they say it. But even if you grant that you know, campus liberalism is gone awry here or there, the connection between that and, say, the Democratic Party is completely unclear to me. I mean, it's these the campus liberals have no real influence on the Democratic Party or, or whatever you think of as a sort of establishment left. And so what are we really talking about here in terms of impact? But one thing, one thing I would say on that, because I think that gets to something that, that does bug me about this conversation. I think when we're talking about because I agree with you, right? There are people who feel like they have to watch what they say. I feel like I have to watch what I say. Right, we all do. Um, like, that's a real thing. And there there are things that have become more salient um, and that people have persuaded me of in the past couple of years. And, I, like, I didn't think a lot about pronouns 15 years ago. And I'm persuaded that I should, right? Like, I have people in my life who prefer to be called a they. And, like, okay. Like, that was weird to me and they explained it to me. And I've, I've you know, I've worked really hard to to be better about that. I think one of the key moves made in this debate and a move I, I hate, I hate, is that 
The question with any boundary on speech, and I don't mean like a legal boundary because we're not talking about like Congress passing a law. I mean a cultural boundary, which we have all the time constantly. Like everybody in this debate basically agrees that CNN should not just give a show to a Nazi, right? Like we we agree, like there should be bound, there should be like what is acceptable, right? Like nobody wants Harvard's commencement speaker to um, be a Nazi. Like, so, okay, like, so now like we're talking about which boundaries are good and which are bad. And the move I constantly see made is to, like, transition this into a free speech, like, category. That, like, what we're talking about now is free speech, open inquiry discourse. And no, it isn't. Like, free speech is not being silenced. And so I am 100% on board. Maybe this goes back to the, 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 the going too far question. I have seen some of these situations, I'm like, that is a bad boundary on speech. And, like, the fact that it is getting beat back seems to me to be a good thing. Like that, like that is a bad boundary on speech. Like for instance, um, I am not a fan of the idea that you shouldn't talk to Steve Bannon. I think there are some like distinct issues around the New Yorker festival, you know, like they were paying him and it's this kind of festival that people pay to go. And so like, I can see some things around that and like the idea of an ideas festival. So like, maybe I can squint and see that. Like as a political reporter, as somebody who runs a podcast, like I would talk to Steve Bannon, like flatly. Like he is somebody who had an idea that became very influential in American politics. That idea remains influential in American politics. And like, while I would do so in a way that is hopefully skeptical and tough-minded, like part of my job is to understand the world clearly. And like, I think the idea that you would like write him out, like the world is what it is. Like, I think he's somebody who like, you have to understand like the things he's thinking about are worth understanding. Um, and that, that does not imply an endorsement of him. You know, you want to think about who you amplify, but I don't think you want to have a blinkered view of the world because you're so worried about amplifying someone that you can't hear from them. So, okay. So like there are definitely places where I think like people are trying to place boundaries on, on speech or inquiry that I think maybe go too far. And then there are a lot where they're not going too far, where you have a group that has been like kicked around for a really long time and didn't have the numbers or the power or the recognition or the organization or the context or whatever it might've been to say, Hey, the way you're talking about me constantly hurts or it makes a space, a space that I don't feel comfortable in. And like oftentimes they're right. And then people say, oh, you're, you're infringing my free speech by criticizing me when I speak about you in a way you don't like. And it's like, no, that's not a free speech issue. Like it's just not. It's not an inquiry issue. You can be criticized. Like that is how the discourse works. Like that is how we come to – that is both how we come to a more empirically accurate view of the universe, but it's also how we become more decent people. Like, I would really much prefer to have more of these conversations about, like, is this boundary on speech good or or not even boundary because we're always moving them from one place to another, right? Like, it, there was a boundary before. It's just moving around. And so it's like, is this debate we're having, like, is the thing under consideration, would that be good or bad? Like, maybe it would be bad. Like, I think they sometimes are. Like, maybe it would be good. I think they often are. But I just, I hate the effort to, like, make saying shitty things um, or often things that are untrue and then defending yourself as like, I am exercising my free speech. Like, that's not an analytically rigorous way to go through the world. And the idea that people think that that is making them sharper arguers, like, I am definitely not seeing our, uh, evidence of that. Well, that's part of the frustration with this conversation, right? You're either pro-free speech or you're just a Maoist demagogue, right? And, like, maybe we may disagree slightly here. I mean, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of the idea of trigger warnings or safe spaces in college classrooms. I personally don't think violence is being done to someone when they collide with uncomfortable ideas. 
But at the same time, when I hear someone like Jordan Peterson suggest that the step from using new pronouns to Stalinist gulags is just one move away, I mean, that is preposterous to me, right? And just not an honest framing of the conversation or the problem. Trigger warnings seem to me to be a classic example of a thing that might be a good idea in narrow circumstances and then isn't a good idea overly broadly applied. And like a lot of new things, it's like people are trying to figure out where to put it. Right. Um, So I think I often am not a fan of trigger warnings, but I definitely think it's like a real thing that like survivors of real trauma, you know, it's like good to like let people know something is coming. You know, we do this in a lot of other places, like movie ratings are a kind of trigger warning. Like we don't call it that, but obviously that's what they are. They're a guide to like, is this going to be appropriate for different kinds of people? It's why we don't just say R. We say, hey, there's violence, there's nudity, there's this, there's that. Safe spaces, we could go very deep here. Uh, Again, applies in different ways, but I'm going to put a pin in that because I think it's going to be um, something that, that Hyde and I talk about. And I have, I have more complicated feelings on that one. But that's a I, I think like I, I think I will tell people to stay tuned for uh, a longer discussion of it. Our next question is from Andrew Elric. And he's basically pointing out that social media sort of changed the campaign paradigm as we currently understand it. And it's made money perhaps less important than it used to be. And so his question is basically sort of to ask you to walk him through how money actually translates to political outcomes in our current process. So uh, this is obviously a big question that people can and do write books about. I'll say a couple things because I I do know that I'm being a little long-winded here. Um, I'll try to say them quickly. One, I think money is overrated in high information campaigns. So I think the idea that raising a lot of money in, say, a presidential campaign buys you the race, um, if that were true, Jeb Bush would be president Um, or, frankly, Hillary Clinton would be president. So I think that, like, around very high information things, the impact of money is overstated substantially. Money is very powerful in low information races. Um, You know, when these Republican billionaires dump $50 million into state legislature races or House races where people don't know much about the candidates, that can really matter. In an informationally thin space, money can define candidates who don't have a capacity to define themselves any other way. The other thing that money just does is that because it's one of the things politicians can control by raising it, it just puts them in contact with people with money. And so it really affects what issues they think about. It affects who they're listening to. It affects who they're spending time with. And I think that that has a very powerful shaping effect on on American politics. There's an experience of America that you get if you have a lot of money, and there's an experience of America that you get if you have a lot less money. I don't mean to say that they are like just two experiences, but, you know, speaking to them as categories. And the fact that politicians are constantly raising money and spending time with rich people is genuinely distorting. The other thing I'll say is that, again, this relates to, to high information or high polarization. If you're looking at like why Obamacare passes or doesn't pass or, you know, why something passes or doesn't pass, that's a big issue, like a headline issue. Usually polarization and like party votes are going to be the main determinant. So I think often about the immigration bill in the Senate and in the House, you know, there was a lot of money in favor of that bill, the Senate, the Gang of Eight Compromise. But it failed in the House because the House was controlled by Republicans, right? The fact that the Chamber of Commerce wanted that bill, that the AFL-CIO wanted that bill, like the fact that like all the tech money wanted that bill, like it wasn't enough to pass that bill. What money is very powerful in doing, though, is shaping the actual structure of bills. So it often won't decide whether a bill passes or fails, but it will decide what like 
paragraph 700, subsection 3, part 2, actually says. And so there's a lot in these bills that people don't know or don't understand. And money has a really, really big effect on that. It is a really big effect on, you know, how details are drawn up in this legislation. And so while it may not decide whether or not you get an Obamacare or whether or not you get an infrastructure bill, because, you know, what will often matter there is whether or not the president's party simply has enough votes to pass the legislation, it often really will decide what is going on in the guts of that bill. You know, Obamacare is a different bill than it would have been if the Democrats weren't afraid of moneyed interests in the healthcare industry. You know, the immigration bill was a different bill than it would have been if they weren't really trying to get the Chamber of Commerce and, and other groups like that on board. Like, money really matters in, 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 in those spaces. So overestimated for high information campaigns, underestimated for low information campaigns, overestimated for whether bills pass, that at least bills we know about, underestimated or maybe correctly estimated for how those bills are actually written. Right. And it's probably worth noting, I think there was a 2014 report by the United Republic that showed something like 91 percent of congressional elections were won by the better financed candidates. And, you know, there's no simple one-to-one causality there in 2014 in today's political time feels like an eternity ago. But I mean, it clearly – matters. But I think that that high, low information distinction is... I don't, I don't, I'm very skeptical of reports like that just for the simple reason that almost all congressional elections are won by incumbents. Right. And for obvious reasons, incumbents are probably going to raise more money than their challenges are. So I'm not saying the money isn't part of why they win, but it's very hard to untangle correlation and causation there. Well, let me ask you one follow-up to this. And it's something I hear a lot. You know, many people are saying, Ezra, that <laughs> are, you, are they? That if you removed all private money from politics, if you just got it all out of the process, that that would be something like a panacea. Uh, do, do you buy that at all? No, I don't. Um, I mean, I guess it depends a little bit what we're talking about. Like, okay, how are people getting messages out? Are we ta- like do television networks now give them guaranteed time? Like, you got to think about what you mean when you say getting all private money out of politics, but. I am not a big believer in the idea that money is behind all of our political ills. I particularly don't believe it is behind polarization specifically, which I think is maybe our central political problem. And while it might be in some cases an accelerant, although in some cases, by the way, it's a decelerant, um, there are, say, like a lot of big companies um, and big industries that want Congress to actually compromise on stuff, not gridlock and breach the debt ceiling. So money's not always on the side of polarization. And by the way, small money is often particularly on the side of polarization, whereas big money sometimes isn't, you know. So you often have like very pragmatic industry donors and you have small donors who get involved because like they're really into a candidate who they feel is fighting for them. So, you know, I think getting money out of politics would be a good thing, but I I don't like the idea that it would lead to some perfect political system is, I, I think, I think not correct. Maybe if we got rid of cable news at the same time, we'd be a little closer. <laughs> oh, but, there, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of media we could, yeah, you know, indeed. I, if I could make one change, I would probably turn off, turn off political Twitter. Yeah. That would, that would probably be my first thing. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kid's shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 
That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So our next question is from Dave Pascal. And I know this is a question that's close to your heart. And he's writing as, I presume, a a young activist who has been given advice that his time would be better spent if he focused his efforts on local movements or campaigns, that federal races get all the publicity, but your time is much better spent working at the local level. What do you think about that? I think that's true. I think that we disproportionately hear about, learn about, get invested in, and work in um, national politics. And I know I say that as like literally by somebody whose like job is like revolves around national politics and is providing that kind of information to hook people into national politics. So I, I recognize that like I'm probably part of the problem here, but I think that it's imbalanced and on the margin, almost everybody would be better off concentrating locally. And by the way, local things ladder up to state and state ladders up to national. So these things are not separate. This is how you create benches of politicians. It's how you create ideas that then become national models. Um, All kinds of good things come out of better local efforts. But another way of putting this is that I think that you've got to ask yourself, like, what you're trying to do when you're engaged in politics. And Obviously, the thing we always tell ourselves we're doing is we're trying to make the world better. We're trying to create a more just world, a more fair world, a more whatever world, an economy with more growth, whatever it might be. We're trying to make the world better. And I think often if we really interrogate it, we're following politics like a team sport. We're following it the way we follow sports. And it has higher stakes than that. So you're able to justify it in a different way. But if you really look at what you're doing, the energy you're putting in is not the energy that is most likely to change something. It's the energy that keeps you most engaged in the drama of it, right? It's the energy to keep up with the story. It's the energy to know what Donald Trump tweeted every day, as opposed to like looking around and saying, okay, like where could the hours I'm willing to spend on this this week actually make the most difference? And I think almost always if people looked at that, they would find it's local politics where they can have a huge effect by talking to their mayor or by, you know, picketing city hall. Like they're just like at that level of representation, people really will listen to you and and people should 
like spend more time at that level of representation. And I'll also say, like, I'm I'm setting them up here a little bit as a as intention to each other. I'm not at all sure they are. I think local politics um, it teaches you how to be involved in politics, but also it makes being involved in politics a much better thing. Like it's a it's it's more. I've said this already in this podcast, but it's connecting to your community. It often like convinces you things can happen and good things can happen. And, you know, it, it gives you context that then like when there's a presidential election or a midterm election, you can use to organize. So I often I think that people who do more work in local politics probably end up being more effective when they want to turn their attention to working on national politics as well. That's the thing about the having politics become nationalized, that it's 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 turned everything into a kind of team oriented. It's narrativized everything, really. Yeah. And the thing, the thing about local politics is that. You're working with people that you know and can see and you're dealing with issues that are less abstract and that you can – that are that are tangible and real and present. And, and I think that's just a much better way to spend your time and probably a more fulfilling way to do activism. Yeah, I think that's completely right. Do you think someone is better – their time is better spent serving candidates or causes? That I – People got to find what makes sense for them, what makes sense in their area, what they're most passionate about. Your time, your time is, I think, best spent on the thing that you're most passionate about. Um, I don't think one should be like a purely rational, cold calculator here. Like, I think you should ask yourself, like, what do you care about? What do you want to have an impact about? Like, maybe you're really committed to this candidate. You think like they're a future president or you think they're really bringing something that needs to be heard. Or maybe you're really committed to this cause or maybe you want to clean up this wetland. Like, whatever it might be, like, I think the thing to connect to is a thing you care about. All right. Our next question, and, and who oh boy, this is a big one. It's from Leo Arbanov. Sorry if I mispronounced that, Leo. He writes, capitalism's foundational idea is that economic competition is critically important. Do you think that this foundation inherently pushes our society to a place where zero-sum thinking uh, is a default frame that we simply cannot escape or change? Yeah, I think it does, actually. I think this is a really insightful question. I think the idea yeah. that competition is the core framework for like not just everything in our economy, but increasingly more in our politics, more in our culture. Like this is part of Patrick Deneen's critique that, you know, the left and the right, they both have kind of bought into this idea of like a, like a competition of individual flourishing as being like the way to a good life. And they're actually sort of hand in hand in this, not, not in opposition as they often present themselves. I think there's something to it. And I, I think that we we are raised in a culture if you're if you're in America where a kind of zero sum competitive thinking is so is so deeply ingrained in us that it can be really hard to get out of it and i think it's one reason by the way donald trump is an effective politician that he he frames everything in terms of zero-sum competition, right? Like our trade deals with other countries, our, our our relationship with NATO, like nothing for him is positive sum. Everything is zero-sum, like you are winning or you are losing. And I think like the background assumptions of a society really matter. And I think this is one of them. You know, the word neoliberal is thrown around in a lot of weird ways. Um, I, I have particularly a funny space in this because when I um, was early in politics, uh, I was actually considered like a like a vicious critic of neoliberalism because back then neoliberalism meant like DLC Democrat. And you can go back in an old Washington Monthly and they, they had me do an interview with Charlie Peters, who's considered one of the people who like founded the neoliberal movement in America, uh, which doesn't mean the thing we now used the word to mean. And so it's like this, it was framed as this like big discussion between like, you know, like a founder of neoliberalism and like it's it's like mean kind of like young, know-nothing critic. 
And now like I am like neoliberalism, <laughs> like people look at me and like, you're a neoliberal. And I think that the way in which neoliberal makes the most sense as a term and as a critique is the idea that a market logic has expanded to influence and shape too many things in our life and, and particularly too many things in the state provision of services. And so we have trouble getting out of the idea that like under neoliberalism, you would have never had libraries, right? Like why not, you know, if you, if you need to give people books, right? If you need to make sure that the poor people have books, why not just subsidize vouchers to Amazon or something? And like, I think there's a lot to that critique. I think that a kind of market competition view of the world is valuable. I think market competition is important and it is efficient, but it is certainly not everything and it can certainly have terrible outcomes. And I think recognizing that and recognizing how how for granted we take its power and how for granted we take its value is an important thing to seeing possible solutions and, and also to seeing our problems clearly. Like I, I will say like something I'm thinking a lot about is I think that journalism itself is too much now of a competitive market-oriented phenomenon. It's much more competitive because we're competing with many more um, outlets, right? Because of the nationalization and digitization of everything. So, you know, you don't have like one or two papers in a city. You have like every paper competing with every other paper simultaneously. You have the war for instant attention on Twitter and Facebook. You have cable news, which have like second by second Nielsen ratings against one another. Like, and and you have a business model that's breaking down because Google and uh, Facebook are taking all the advertising. And I think we're getting really competitive. And I think that competition um, is both like kind of necessary for keeping the business models working and is also pushing us in in dangerous directions, in directions where we're, you know, there's very little judgment, um, editorial judgment being exercised, there's very little time to stop and think about something like, and there's very little ability to resist something that everybody else is talking about, even if you don't think it's the right thing really to be talking about. So I think being cautious about whether competition and sort of the zero-sumness that comes as a byproduct of it is actually the best way to structure things in our society and our lives. I think that is a thing to be cautious about and a thing to recognize is like embedded as a cultural value, even in places we may not realize it really is. Yeah, I find that people often forget that capitalism is not just an economic system. It's a morality too, right? And the values propping it up, competitiveness, greed, acquisitiveness, whatever – that these define our way of life. It's a way of life, really, and and that these values color our, our interactions far beyond our economic lives. And it's the idea that you can have the economic part without the morality part is probably misguided. I'm a big Parks and Rec fan, and there's this episode of Parks and Rec where Ron Swanson uh, shows, like, just for, like, a second or two on screen while he's coaching a basketball team, like the Swanson Pyramid of Virtues. And <laughs> yeah. like like a lot of other Parks and yeah. Rec obsessives, I've, like, like freeze-framed on this and, like, read them all. One of them is capitalism, God's way, <laughs> God's way of showing who is smart and who is poor. <laughs> right. Like, yes, like, we use capitalism as a sorting mechanism, as a way of divining worth, and it is very much not that. It can be that, by the way, in certain kinds of consumer products, right? I don't want to take everything away from market competition here, but just like it's not everything, right? Not everything is, um, is, is about winning market competition or certainly not everything should be about winning market competition. Do you see a viable alternative to capitalism at this point in history? Is it just one? I, I mean, I think we're, everything we're looking at are mixed economies, right. uh, you know, with different levels of mixes. And like then there's also this overlay of political freedom versus political illiberalism that, on top of that. So I think you're always trying to think about where to put the dial. 
I don't think it, it has just one. I mean, you know, there are a lot of libertarians who tell you it is profoundly lost, right? Like healthcare, education, are these huge spaces of life that are absorbed by the state. And so I think everything is a tacking between slightly unsatisfying options with their own benefits and drawbacks. And to say anything is won or anything is lost, I don't think there are, like, there are no pure systems and there are no pure answers. And we're just kind of, we're kind of muddling through. Our next question is from Peter Johnson. And he is a young journalist at the beginning of his career. And he's asking, how can someone at his place get noticed and get into a full-time position? What would you recommend? And what are your thoughts on the state of the industry and how it attracts talent? So uh, the first thing that I would recommend to the extent you can is to be presumably I'm presuming you're a writer. But, you know, if you're a podcaster or a video producer, just, you know, sub that in for what I'm talking about. The absolute most important thing to do, in my view, and again, I speak a little bit here from my own experience, which is unusual. And I started out as a blogger and, you know, all of that. But but the most important thing to do, in my view, is to be doing your journalism every day, all the time, no matter whether or not anybody is giving you permission or even paying you to do it. And like, I recognize not everybody has the ability to do that. You know, not everybody has the time to do that. Not everybody has the finances to do that. Not everybody has like the the space to do it. But I've also seen a lot of people who want to be journalists and maybe they're in college or they're in J school or maybe they're out and they're being a freelance writer or audio producer or whatever. And they're like, they're spending all their time pitching. and the problem is then it's like hard to like get those first gigs as opposed to spending all their time getting better so that like when they do get that first pitch or or even if they don't, right, that they have clips to give someone. One of the amazing things about about this era is that, you know, with with podcasts, with blogs and medium and, and for that matter, Twitter and Facebook, there are so many places where if you wrote something really great and you, you're able to just like send it out to a couple of people, it really can get noticed. And I think that might have been a little bit easier when I was coming up, but it's not impossible now. Um, you know, I've seen a bunch of people rise up through Twitter. Uh, you know, I, I've seen people like literally like through Twitter, like get huge jobs. Um, I've seen, you know, uh, bloggers come up in, in just like the last couple of years. Think of someone like Slate Star Codex or um, Wait But Why, right? These are bloggers who are just like doing their own thing and got noticed. And, you know, um, I think they have their own things going on, but they're very, very successful in that way. I think that there, you know, I think a lot of podcasts have come out of nowhere to become huge. And, you know, these spaces get more crowded. It gets harder. But even if you're not, you know, blowing up, if what you have is like a really, really amazing, you know, medium page or really amazing podcast, maybe it isn't getting that many lessons. But then you apply for a job and you're able to show people like, look, I did this. I did this all myself. Like as somebody who's hired a lot of folks, that's what I'm looking for. I mean, many of our, our best journalists, we hired not out of journalism. We hired them because they were doing blogs on the side. Or Amanda Taub, who's now at the New York Times, um, she was a human rights lawyer who wrote a blog about human rights. And, you know, we hired her on the strength of that work. And she's an amazing, amazing journalist and has been a huge, a huge success. So really try to be just getting better at your work. Really try, if you can, to take advantage of the opportunities. Just do your work every day. Be really disciplined about that. Don't just wait for people to give you permission to do it. And then, you know, to the extent you have choices between places, I often tell people to choose the ability to do their craft over prestige. You know, I'll often talk to people who, you know, say like, oh, you know, like I could be a copy editor at like this place you've heard of, or I could be a writer at, you know, a smaller, more digital first outlet. And I often tell people, go be the writer. Like it matters more that you're getting better at writing if writing is what you want to do than that you're getting 
better at copy editing in a place that is more prestigious. Like if those two applications come to me, I may talk to them both, but I care a lot more about seeing the clips. So, you know, again, all of this advice, like it's a hard industry to break into. It relies on, um, you know, you having the time and space to do some of this, but to the extent you do, every day is a day to get better at your craft, even if um, you are not yet at a job somewhere. And the better you get, the more likely you are to get that job. Do you think it's better for someone to drill down and develop expertise like in a specific area? Or do you think it's better for them to become a generalist and just develop a capacity to float from topic to topic? I'm a big fan of drilling down and developing expertise. I think that – I think there's nothing harder to be than a generalist. Um, I think to be a generalist, you need to be so good at writing or something else that you just blow away a competition that is completely vast. And I think generalists are a lot less valuable in this era. So again, you're hearing from me, like I'm just one person. I have my career. I have the careers of the people I value. I have my organization, right? Like the, the things that I have been around, but I'm a, I'm a huge fan and I am much more um, attentive to applications from people that come and they're demonstrating a really deep knowledge, a capacity for obsession, a capacity to learn about things with a level and thoroughness other people haven't demonstrated. Like there's, there's always a market for that. Um, whereas there's not always a market for like just one more person floating from thing to thing because they got some opinions. Our final question is from Whitting. And he writes, what is the difference between how you view identity politics in the U.S. and how those at Quillette, Heterodox Academy, and the intellectual dark web view identity politics? Is Keith Stanovich's article, What is the Tribe of the Tribalists, a fair rebuttal to your position? So I don't want to speak for all these people, right? These are big umbrellas and different people in them have different views. I had not seen this article until it got sent to me. I would not call it a rebuttal of what I am saying about identity politics, much as as an example of what I am saying about identity politics. So, so let me read. We'll put it in show notes. It's a long piece. You can read it for yourself. Uh, but, but I think this is a core graph. I think a rational, empirical, universalist approach to argument is the best perspective to adopt when discussing social issues. I wish the tribalists would not frame issues with the perspective and interests of their own tribes as their central focus. So what is an anti-tribalist to do when faced with a tribalist who refuses to argue in any other manner? I cannot add anything original to the long list of arguments that the anti-tribalists have made in their attempts to get tribalists to abandon their approach. Okay, so (laughs) when what you have done is you've said, we are the anti-tribalist group who are rational, empirical, and universalist in our approach to argumentation, and everybody else is the tribalists who are not. What you are doing is you have constructed an identity. That identity is operating in a very powerful way. It is leading you to dismiss where other people are coming from. Um, It is leading you to have trouble hearing what they are saying. And it has created a real distortion on the way you're going to view the world. Look, like, I do not consider myself, frankly, I I like to think I'm like less tribalist than a lot of people are. I also think I'm rational, empirical, universalist. We all do. But part of diving deep into the literature of identity and cognitive bias is that you realize it affects you too. It affects all of us. My dispute with these folks is not that I am not a tribalist. It's that they are tribalists. It's that when you have given yourself a group name and t-shirts, when you're the intellectual dark web, when you're the anti-tribalist, when you're the rationalists, 
um, and everybody else is not when they're the identity politics people and they're not honest and you are like that is how it works. Like you've just done it. Um, I think that possibly in this world of folks who come somewhat out of the atheist world and, and comes, you know, out of these others, they can only see identity as being these couple of, you know, sort of biological or, um, you know, very old or culturally traditionalist ones like Christian or African-American or Asian or Jewish. But identity is much more complex than that. And it's much more constructed. I mean, for one thing, obviously, as, as Sam Harris and all these people would say, religious identities are constructed at some point in time. They're, they're not something we're born with. They're not something that are encoded in our DNA. You know, similarly, there's no doubt that Republican is an identity, Democrat an identity, liberal an identity. I think that this world of folks would serve their own, uh, I, I hope, right, serve their own purposes and how they want to approach the world better if they spend a little bit more time trying to understand what it was that was constructing an identity and, and a coalition amongst them. From the outside, it's not confusing at all. You have a group of people they have like ideological differences on a number of things, but they're quite together in this fight with social justice warriors. They really don't like this thing that they have narrowly defined as identity politics. They're really on one side of a political battle in this country. And that's okay. Like that's how political coalitions form. It's, it's what they are. But that they can't see it is really genuinely bizarre to me, right? It was part of what I was trying to say to Harris when obviously that debate had a lot of backstory and it was complicated and people can go look it up and read our emails and do all that. But, you know, I kept trying to say like, hey, talk to the scientists who are criticizing you. Like, I'm not all that involved in this. And he didn't want to. And it came out in our conversation that he didn't believe he could trust them, right? He kept accusing everybody, me, them, Tanasi Kos, everybody of being dishonest. Whereas like Charles Murray who he had decided to have this conversation with because Charles Murray was attacked by social justice warriors on a campus. Charles Murray, you know, who this is actually not his field. Um, and Charles Murray, who's got an extremely clear and long-running political agenda, well, like, that is an unimpeachable source. And that's honestly to say nothing against Charles Murray. Like, you're fully allowed to operate as Charles Murray in the public sphere. He's like, a, he's a He's a political and policy entrepreneur. He, like, works at a think tank. Like, I'm very familiar with that kind of person. I've talked to Charles Murray dozens of times over the years. But to not see what's happening in your own mental software is just, like, bizarre to me. And then to write something like, you know, we're the, we're the anti-tribalists who are the rational ones and everybody else. Like, I don't know. Like, if your whole point, the world is complex. Like, our experiences are limited. Like, what we can know about the world is contingent. It's really hard. Like... All of it is really hard, and we're probably wrong about a lot more than we think we are. And if you've, like, if you have built a tribal identity over the idea that you are a clear thinker who is not wrong, like, that's, like, the most irrational thing I can possibly imagine doing. Well, let me push back a little bit Get me. Um, in defense of Keith, whose article I frankly found unreadable. But oddly enough, at least one point he tries to make in there, and I'll let you respond to it here, is that – it's not necessarily that we can escape the trap of identity altogether, but but he what he's lobbying for is we ought to redefine identity in such a way, say as uh, identifying as Americans, um, or to carve out our identities in a way that isn't tied to these sort of immutable characteristics like race or gender or whatever. And by doing that, 
we can be more inclusive, appeal to more people and have conversations that don't feel sort of zero sum or intractable. What is wrong with that? Yeah. So so what he does in the piece, so he's got this kind of weird thought experiment in there, or maybe not that weird. I think it's actually in some ways like less Well, whatever. So what he says is like, imagine I wasn't an anti-tribalist. Imagine I was going to choose an identity. Like I would choose this kind of supra-American identity. And, you know, I would choose an identity that was American and sort of like believed most of the things I believe and like didn't like people like, you know, separating themselves off into groups and, and getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And like that identity would be bigger and would beat these identities that people on the left are trying to split us into. So it's like this identity politics thing, it's a dead end. And on some level, of course, right? Like, this, again, is what's slightly peculiar to me about this conversation. I exist primarily in the world of politics, where it's constantly a war over national identity. You know, Barack Obama was masterful at constructing national identity. Yeah. Um, Donald Trump constructed a kind of counter-national identity. You know, I, I think actually a lot of the fight right now is, is your version of a national identity one that is inclusive of a diversifying America and the political demands that come out of that, or that is exclusive of it, right? Is your version of national identity make America great again, or is it, you know, make America Great, right? Make America the thing that America has always promised itself to be. But the fact that there are national identities is never going to take away the fact that there are also going to be other identities operating simultaneously. This is, again, like one of my, it's one of my big themes on the show. It's one of my big themes just like in general. We really make a mistake when we use identity politics. Having identity operate there as a singular term is a huge mistake. It should be identities politics. We have a huge number of identities that are operating simultaneously at any given time. And I say this all the time, like, I'm Jewish, I'm Californian, um, I, like, lived in Washington, D.C., I like Macintosh computers, right? Like, there's a whole world of identities based on what kinds of computers you like, I guess, Apple now. And it's about which identities are getting called forth, and good politicians— they call forth a more national identity. They try to create a big tent, right? Even Hillary Clinton was trying to do this, right? I don't think she was great at it, but her whole, her slogan was stronger together. Like that was the idea that like there's an identity that is an emergent out of all of us coming together as Americans and seeing each other as our countrymen and, and countrywomen and, and trying to support each other in, in actually having the opportunities for good and flourishing lives. And so like, yes, right? Like a hundred percent. But the issue is, there are also going to be specific identities there that are informing those national identities. And there always have been and there always will be. Like within Barack Obama's inclusive version of national identity is, for instance, among them, a sub-identity of African-Americans saying, hey, look, like one of our experiences in this country has been unsparing police brutality, has been constant violence at the hands of the state. And like that needs to be taken seriously and remedied. And in Obama's version of identity, when you hear that, what you do is you say, huh, like, that makes sense, right? Like, I take seriously that your experience has given you knowledge about what it is like to be a black person in this country that I don't have. And while, like, you know, just personal testimony does not, um, like, you know, it, it cannot be the only thing we go off of for making policy, given that, like, this is a widely experienced thing and it accords with the data that we have, like, let's take it seriously. And then, like, there, there's another version that says, you know, um, and I would say this is Donald Trump's version that, like, comes from his place of suspicion and comes from his place of discounting it. And Chicago is a hellhole and it's all about black on black crime. And, and like, I think it is reasonable to say that Donald Trump hears testimony from people who don't fit his vision of America and he discounts it. 
you know, I guess in a very specific way when he's like, you know, the judge who's got Mexican heritage, though that judge was born in the U.S., is not qualified to be a judge in a case relating to me because he'll be biased. Now, I'm not saying that the author of this article buys into Donald Trump's version of national identity. What I'm saying is that national identities are composed of a mix of other identities. National politics is composed of a lot of groups that are coming forward with concerns that relate to that group. Yes, if we had perfect knowledge, we could be perfectly universalist and rationalist about it. But I think part of being rationalist and empirical in a world where we don't have perfect knowledge is recognizing that people's experiences differ and there's genuinely valid information in those differing experiences. You know, like I remember one part of my exchange with Sam was, you know, we were we were going back and forth on, on this IQ and race issue. And like the fundamental like disagreement we have is that I think the evidence backs us up. You know, IQ tests are measuring a outcome that has a million social forces acting on it. And so to say that those tests are measuring something immutable, to say that they're measuring something genetic, I just don't see any reason to believe that, um, particularly given how much of that IQ, that racial IQ gap has closed in the past 50, 60 years. Like there's been a huge closing of it. It's the, how much it is closed is bigger than how big it is. So, you know, now you look around and say, okay, how much is both the legacy and the current state of, of racism and discrimination acting on that gap? And, you know, something he said to me was like, well, look, if that were true, then an African-American kid who's like second generation or third generation middle income should be at the same point as a, as a white kid who's second or third generation or however many generations middle income. And like, he just didn't know the literature. Like, we know that, say, an African-American family making $100,000 lives in a neighborhood with the income composition that is equal to that of a white family making $30,000 making more, a little bit more money in American life, particularly income, does not wipe out everything else going on in race in this country. If you look at those two families on income and look at their wealth against each other, it will be completely different. And the point is that to actually be rational and empirical and analytical about that, you have to be really diving deep into that experience. Like you have to be, you have to be like listening, like really closely and then exploring what you're hearing. And like my argument was like flatly that more of that was needed. I think the way a lot of this identity politics conversation is going is it's a way to like not have to listen to people. Like it is explicitly a way to not have to listen to people because you're saying their way of looking at the world is distorted. It is irrational. It is not empirical. It is particularistic. And yours is not. And to me, again, like that is a huge mistake. And talking about national identity doesn't get you away from it. National identity is composed of these identities and which national identity we choose will have a lot to do with how we hear out and how we think about the kind of subgroups that are feeding into it. Because, you know, we are all these things. We are humans. We are Americans. We are workers. We are managers. We are things simultaneously. And it is about the interplay of our identities and the way we treat the identities of each other that ends up really mattering here. So I'm curious... Well, your response is to someone like Mark Lilla. Mark Lilla is a political theorist at Columbia University, wrote a book last year called The Once and Future Liberal, and he makes a purely sort of tactical argument on this front. So he, he concedes that, that race and gender and all these things are, are problems and there are inequities and all that. But he says, basically, if you want to help people, you have to acquire power. If you want to acquire power, you have to win elections. And if you want to win elections, you have to appeal to as many people as possible. And therefore, Democrats would be much better equipped or their time would be better spent talking about, you know, economic 
populism or the economy and class than they would talking about gender or race or any of these other things because that would help them win elections. And therefore, that would get them into power so that they could actually improve the lives of the people they want to help. I mean, on some of I think that's true and also banal. And I don't want to speak for Mark Lilla here because he's not here to defend himself and he's a sharp guy. But I think like one of the tricky things in this conversation is we get confused between which things people are talking about and which things we are hearing from them. So because identity is really important to people, because things of their that respond to them particularly are important to them, and because in particular social media and then a more competitive media respond to the things that get the most intense audiences, fights that revolve around these identities are getting a lot of attention. They bubble up in a way that like a debate on tax policy often doesn't. But if you go and listen to the rhetoric, if you go and look at the speeches, if you go and look at what people are doing or talking about, they're often quite broad. Uh, they're they're very, very broad. I mean, Hillary Clinton talked constantly about jobs in the economy. If you look at the ads Democrats ran in the campaign, they were about pre-existing conditions. Like, there has not been, to my knowledge, like a national Democratic candidate or even a Senate Democratic candidate who primarily talked about race. I think gender is actually an interesting question um, in the sense of like, I again don't know of anyone who's primarily talked about gender, but given that a majority of voters are female, it's not obvious to me that emphasizing gender issues would not work if you you know found the right way to do it. And also a lot of issues that speak to a gender, in theory, when we say gender issues, we mean women's issues. And a lot of those are actually for everybody. It's like childcare is not like, <laughs> that's not a women's issue. Like children are had by, by both men and women and they should both care about, about how it comes out. Look, being good at politics is better than being bad at politics and controlling your message is better than being out of control of your message and focusing on things that are popular is more likely to win you elections and focusing on things that are unpopular. But most of these fights about identity politics, save for the ones that Donald Trump is starting, I do not actually see as being about the things that national level Democrats are saying. Um, national level Democrats tend to be coming up with like tax cut plans and health care plans and whatever. And then, you know, they get like kind of sideswiped by, you know, immigration fights and, and, and other things that they don't really want to be talking about. And I often worry that what's really being pushed here is that when those things come up, when they're confronted with them, they should fold. And like that, I don't believe. I don't believe that, you know, what you should do is treat immigrants poorly because that might help you win elections. I think you need to find a way that treating immigrants well um, wins elections. I think part of leadership and part of political leadership is making the things that are important popular, is selling things that maybe people don't know that they want to be sold. You know, the issue of police brutality, I don't think Black Lives Matter was like a good thing for Democrats in the 2016 election. But I also don't think the thing to do is to ignore police brutality. You've got to find a way of talking about it. You've got to figure it out. Nobody said it's easy. Nobody said politics is easy. Nobody said winning these elections is easy. But, you know, there's not really a, a choice. But this is why I slightly have trouble with the Mark Lilla, the sort of Mark Lilla world of thinking, because I talk to a lot of Democrats. I like study their campaigns pretty closely. Like I listen to these critiques. They're not in as much contradiction as I think people often consider they are. They're often made to look like they're in contradiction by pulling out specific things people have said. There were a very small sample of what they were saying in general. But when I look at the campaigns, like I think Hillary Clinton, who won a share of the vote that was near to what Obama won, but not exactly what Obama won, and so she lost. I think she was like not a super talented politician, and she had problems around her emails and other things. But I don't think her message was actually all that off. I think she wasn't like as good at politics as you needed to be to pull off that message. Um, I spent a lot of time talking to, to 
democratic politicians. I've read and looked at critiques like Lilla's. I actually just think there's less daylight here than people think. It's often made to look like there's a big difference of opinion by pulling out like a particular part of a particular speech. But in my, like, I don't know any Democrats thinking about running for president in 2020 who are not thinking constantly about how to craft a story of national identity. Like, this is just not a super controversial view. All right, Sean, thank you, man. That, that, that was really great. That was a lot of talking for me, but, but, but I really appreciate you being here to do it. I was glad to be here, man. Thanks for having me. All right, that's the Ezra Klein Show um, on the Vox Media Podcast Network. As always, we'll be back in a couple of days. As always, thank you to my producer, Jillian Weinberger, my engineer, Griffin Tanner, and to all of you for being here and also for sending such thoughtful, uh, interesting questions. I'm, I'm really grateful for it. 